Hey. Oh. Shout out, shout out Serbia. Big ups. Belgrade's in Serbia, right? I believe so. I've got to look. Let me look that up real I think quick. So. Uh, shout out to all our Serbian listeners. We want to thank our Serbian fans. And uh, all you Serbian listeners. Wa- uh, yeah. <laughs> Fan- listeners who are not necessarily fans who listen to this begrudgingly as Even if it was haters. some sort of punishment. Even our haters. Shout Even out to, to the our Serbian Belgrade haters. is the capi- capital of Serbia. Okay, great. Uh, we're watching the uh, Belgrade tennis highlights. That's what we've, uh, the Belgrade Invitational, I assume. Some clay, some clay courts. I was, maybe it's the Belgrade Open. Yeah. Uh, that's what we got on in the background. Um, hello, welcome to Infinite Cast, a pod jest. We're doing this on the odd Friday night. Very it's, strange. It's a raining Friday here in uh, New York City, uh, the big awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got martinis going. Mm-hmm. It's happy hour Friday. Mm-hmm. How how else could one spend it rather than reading from the book of jest? The book of jest. Yes. You know what I did? I did a little extracurricular homework. Mm-hmm. I reread... Uh, shipping out, otherwise known as a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. The cruise ship. You did? Essay. You didn't tell me you did that. I did. How and, was it? Uh, so good. Definitely some things that probably wouldn't pass muster in today's world and, and well, just like sort of cultural analysis and, and class analysis and a lot not body positive uh, at all in terms of uh, assessing the his fellow cruise mm-hmm. goers uh, as being, you know, decrepit and, and, uh, at a at a post. Yeah, I I can understand how that would not be body positive, but that is part of the sensory overload of. I mean, there's probably a way to talk about this that isn't you know overly negative, but but mounds of flesh burning in the burning sun. in the sun. No matter how attractive, I mean, if if they're all like I don't know supermodel attractive, then that's one yeah, thing. But just a making- normal people, mounds of normal people flesh burning in the sun on a cruise ship environment is disgusting. He was ma- I don't think at the end of the day he was making a moral judgment. I think he was making yeah, kind of an aesthetic judgment based on uh like you know how we're all sort of uh walking corpses. Yes. uh decaying with each uh, minute we are alive. Yes. Every <laughs> my my favorite Chapo interview was the wellness interview in the cut that they did oh, after yeah, yeah. the book came out and <laughs> Like Will said something like, "Every day I'm alive, I'm getting like older and fatter, and like it's yes. harder to breathe or something." Yes, something <laughs> um, no, I I think that <clears throat> I'm I'm not body positive. I'm I'm bo- I'm generally bo- body negative. And You're that body all, negative. All bodies are disgusting. Okay, I would say I'm bo- I'm body neutral. I'm positive I have a body, and everyone else does too. I would say I'm body neutral. Body neutral. Yeah. Uh, it's fine. Yes. Where, where else am I going to be? Spectrally present? Yes. No no thanks, pal. Give me a, give me that body. Adi, uh, adi, adi. Should we get into this? Let's speaking get into of, it. speaking of things that are gross. Oh I, yeah. You tease me that we're doing more of these uh Uh-oh. these Boston junkies. Yeah, we're back to the t- the tough life of a Boston um uh opiate addict if if you're if you're ready. Yes. It's a this is a, definitely a bummer of a of a section, but got to get through it. And it's page 299, almost at page 300. Almost one, one third of the way through this book. Mm-hmm. All right, shall we? Yes. 14th November, year of the Depend adult undergarment. Poor Tony Krauss had a seizure on the T. It happened on a gray line train from Watertown to Inman Square, Cambridge. 
He'd been drinking codeine cough syrup in the men's room of the Armenian Foundation Library in horrid central Watertown, Massachusetts for over a week, darting out from cover only to beg a script from hideous Eccles Reese and then dash in at Brooks Pharmacy wearing a simply vile ensemble of synthetic fiber slacks and suspenders and tweed Donegal cap he'd had to cadge from a longshoreman's union hall. <laughs> Poor Tony couldn't dare wear anything comely, not even the Antitois brothers' red leather coat, not since that poor woman's bag had turned out to have a heart inside. Yes. Uh, he had simply never felt so beset and overcome on all sides as the black July day when it fell to his lot to boost a heart. Who wouldn't wonder, why me? He didn't dare dress expressive or ever go back to the square, and Emile still had him marked for demapping as a consequence of that horrid thing with Woe and Bobby C. last winter. Remember Emile Minty? Yes. Who's no. a, who Emile is currently at... Um, and at House Drug and Alcohol Recovery House. Okay. And has a tattoo that says, uh, fuck uh, a misspelled slur. Same guy that was in the crew. He That's yours truly, who was narrating that unfortunate incident with the hot shot, the laced yes. heroin. Same guy. Okay. That's Emil Minty. Emil Minty is yours truly, which is something that I don't think I even realized the last time I read this. Uh, poor Tony hadn't dared show one feather east of Tremont Street or at the Brighton Projects or even Delfina's in Backwater Enfield since last Xmas, even after Emil simply dematerialized from the street scene. And now since 29 July, he was non grata at Harvard Square and Environs. And even the sight of an Oriental now gave him palpitations, say nothing of an Agnier accessory. Thus, poor Tony had no way to cop for himself. He could trust no one enough to inject their wares. S.T. Cheese and Lola's sister were no more trustworthy than he himself. He didn't even want them to know where he slept. He began drinking cough syrup. He managed to get Bridget Tenderhole and the strictly <laughs> rough trade Stokely Darkstar to cop for him on the wink for a few weeks until Stokely died in a Fenway hospice and then Bridget Tenderhole was shipped by her pimp to Brockton under maddeningly vague circumstances. Then poor Tony had read the dark portents and swallowed the first of his pride and hid himself even more deeply in a dumpster complex behind the IPBWDW, which takes us to end note 102, which is International Brotherhood of Pure Wharf and Dock Workers. Mm. Local number four hall in Fort Point downtown uh, and resolved to stay hidden there for as long as he could swallow the pride to send Lola's sister out to acquire heroin, accepting without pride or complaint the shameless ripoffs the miserable bitch perpetrated upon him until a period in October when Lola's sister went down with hepatitis G. <laughs> Is that a real thing? I don't know. And the supply of heroin dried horribly up and the only people even copping enough to chip were people in a position to dash here and there to great beastly lengths under an open public access sky and no friend, no matter how dear or indebted, could afford to cop for another. Then, holy friend and connectionless, poor Tony, in hiding, began to withdraw from heroin. Not just get strung out or sick, withdraw. The words echoed in his neural neuralgic and wigless head with the simply most awful sinister footsteps echoing in deserted corridor quality. Withdrawal, the wingless fowl, turkeyfication, kicking, <laughs> the old cold bird. 
Poor Tony had never once had to withdraw, not all the way down the deserted corridor of withdrawal, not since he first got strung at 17. At the very worst, someone kind had always found him charming if things got dire enough to have to rent out his charms. Alas, thus, about the fact that his charms were now at low ebb. He weighed 50 kilos, and his skin was the color of summer squash. He had terrible shivering attacks and also perspired. He had a sty that scraped one eyeball as pink as a bunny's. His nose ran like twin spigots, and the output had a yellow-green tinge he didn't think looked promising at all. There was an uncomely dry-rot smell about him that even he could smell. In Watertown, he tried to pawn his fine auburn wig with removable chignon and was cursed at an Armenian because the wig had infestations from his own hair below. Let's not even mention the Armenian pawnbroker's critique of his red leather coat. Talk about bodies being disgusting. <laughs> Poor Tony got more and more ill as he further withdrew. His symptoms themselves developed symptoms. Troughs and nodes he charted with morbid attention in the dumpster, in his suspenders and horrid tweed cap, clutching a shopping bag with his wig and coat and comely abilements he could neither wear nor pawn. The empty Empire Displacement Co. dumpster he was hiding in was new and apple green, and the inside was bare dimpled iron, and it remained new and unutilized because persons declined to come near enough to utilize it. It took some time for poor Tony to realize why this was so. For a brief interval, it had seemed like a break. Fortune's one wan smile. An EWD land barge crew set him straight in language that left quite a bit of tact to be wished for, he felt. <laughs> The, dumpter, the dumpster's green iron cover also leaked when it rained, and it contained already a colony of ants along one wall, which insects poor Tony had, ever since a neurasthenic childhood, feared and detested in particular ants. And in direct sunlight, the quarters became a hellish living environment from which even the ants seemed to vanish. With each step further into the black corridor of actual withdrawal, poor Tony Kraus stamped his foot and simply refused to believe things could feel any worse. Then he stopped being able to anticipate when he needed to, as it were, as it were visit the powder room. A fastidious gender dysphoric horror of incontinence cannot properly be described. Fluids of varying consistency began to pour without advance notice from several openings. Then, of course, they stayed there, oh, the fluids, oh, on the summer dumpster's iron floor. Oh. There they were, not going anywhere. Oh. He had no way to clean up and no way to cop. His entire set of interpersonal associations consisted of persons who did not care about him, plus persons who wished him harm. His own late obstetrician father had rendered his own clothing in symbolic shiva in the year of the Whopper in the kitchen of the Krauss home, 412 Mount Auburn Street, horrid central Watertown. It was the incontinence plus the prospect of 11-4's monthly social assistance checks that drove poor Tony out for a mad scampering relocation to an obscure Armenian Foundation library men's room in Watertown Center, wherein he tried to arrange a stall as comfortingly as he could with shiny magazine photos and cherished knickknacks and toilet paper laid down around the seat and flushed repeatedly and tried to keep true withdrawal at some sort of bay with bottles of Codinex Plus. A tiny percentage of codeine gets metabolized into good old C-17 morphine, affording an agonizing hint of what real relief from the bird might feel like, i.e. the cough syrup did little more than draw the process out, extend the corridor. It slowed up time. Poor Tony sat on the insulated toilet in the domesticated stall all day and night, alternately swilling and gushing. <laughs> he held his high heels up, 
1900 hours when the library staff checked the stalls and turned off all the lights and left poor Tony in a darkness within darkness so utter he had no idea where his limbs own limbs were or went. He left that stall maybe once every two days, scampering madly to Brooks in off cast off shades and a kind of hood or shawl made pathetically of brown men's room paper towels. Time began to take on new aspects for him now as withdrawal progressed. Time began to pass with sharp edges. Its passage in the dark or dim-lit stall was like time was being carried by a procession of ants, a gleaming red martial column of those militaristic red southern U.S. ants that build hideous tall boiling hills, and each vile <laughs> gleaming ant wanted a minuscule little portion of poor Tony's flesh in compensation as it helped bear time slowly forward down the corridor of true withdrawal. By the second week in the stall, time itself seemed Time itself seemed the corridor, lightless at either end. After more time, time then ceased to move, or be moved, or be moved throughable, and assumed a shape above and apart, a huge, musty-feathered, orange-eyed, wingless fowl hunched incontinent apart the, atop the stall with a kind of watchful but deeply uncaring personality that didn't seem keen on poor Tony Krauss as a person at all or to wish him well. I'll, Not one little bit. I'll talk about this more at the end, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, smart alt men do be loving wallowing in the idea of withdrawal. In the idea of withdrawal? Yeah. I mean, I don't... Like, I was looking at a few other examples I'll bring up towards the end. Okay, sure. But it is like, I don't know. This is this is the kind of stuff like... Is it because men are babies and they, they deal with pain worse than women who have an expected pain once a month? I guess. I don't know. There is something about this <laughs> that I find like... I've seen so many of these types of things and read so many of these types of things. I just, even, even when it's particularly well wrote, written, I find it so like tedious and gross... Um, in uh, a way that I, I find, I don't know, lacking merit of mm. examination in some way. Not mm. that I don't have sympathy for it, but it's just the kind of, like, no matter how you do this narrative, it's always the same. Yes. In a, in a way. Sure. You know? I can see that. Uh, it spoke to him from atop the stall, the same things over and over. They were unrepeatable. Nothing in even poor Tony's grim life experience prepared him for the experience of time with a shape and an odor, squatting. And the worsening physical symptoms were a spree at Bonwitz compared to time's black assurances that the symptoms were merely hints, signposts pointing up at a larger, far more dire set of withdrawal phenomena that hung just overhead by a string that unraveled steadily with the passage of time. <laughs> it would not keep still and would not end. It changed shape and smell. It moved in and out of him like the very most feared prison shower assailant. He's being raped by time, it seems. Uh, poor Tony had once had the hubris to fancy he'd had occasion, had occasion really to shiver ever before. But he had never truly really shivered until time's cadences, jagged and cold and smelling oddly of deodorant, <laughs> entered his body via several openings. Cold the way only damp cold is cold. The phrase he'd had the gall to imagine he understood was the phrase chilled to the bone. Shard studded columns of chill entering to fill his bones with ground glass, and he could hear his joints' glassy crunch with every slightest shift of hunched position, time ambient and in the air, and entering and exiting at will coldly, and the pain of his breath against his teeth. Time came to him in the falcon black of the library night in an orange mohawk, and Merry Widow with tacky Amalfo pumps and nothing else. 
Time spread him and entered him roughly and had its way and left him again in the form of endless gushing liquid shit that he could not flush enough to keep up with. He spent the longest morbid time trying to fathom whence all the shit came from when he was ingesting nothing at all but Codinex Plus. Then at some point he realized time had become the shit itself. <laughs> Poor Tony had become an hourglass. Time moved through him now. He ceased to exist apart from its jagged-edged flow. He now weighed more like 45 kilograms. His legs were the size uh, his comely arms had been before withdrawal. He was haunted by the word zukung, a foreign and possibly Yiddish word he did not recall ever before hearing. The word kept echoing in quick-step cadence through his head without meaning anything. He naively assumed that going mad meant you were not aware of going mad. He naively pictured madmen as forever laughing. He kept seeing his sonless father again, removing the training wheels, looking at his pager, wearing a green gown and mask, pouring iced tea in a pebbled glass, staring, tearing his sport shirt in filial woe, grabbing his shoulder, sinking to his knees, stiffening in a bronze casket, being lowered under the snow at Mount, Mount Auburn Cemetery through dark glasses from a distance. <laughs> Chilled to the zukung. Without then, even the funds for the codeine syrup were exhausted. Uh, he sat on the toilet of the rear stall of the AFL Lou, surrounded by previously comforting hung habilements and fashion magazine photographs he'd fashioned, fastened to the wall with tape, cadged on uh, the way in from the reference desk, sat for almost a whole nother night and day because he had no faith that he could stem the flow of diarrhea long enough to make it anywhere if anywhere to go presented itself in his only pair of gender appropriate slacks during hours of lit operation the men's room was full of old men who wore identical brown loafers and spoke slavic and whose rapid fire flatulence smelled of cabbage <laughs> toward the end of the day of the second syrupless afternoon the day of the seizure poor tony kraus began to withdraw from the cough syrups alcohol and codeine and demethylated morphine now as well from the original heroin yielding a set of sensations for which not even his recent experience had prepared him the alcohol withdrawal especially and when the true dt type big budget visuals commenced when the first glossy and minutely hirsute army ant crawled up his arm and refused ghost-like to be brushed away or hammered dead Poor Tony threw his hygienic pride into Time's porcelain maw and pulled up his slacks, mortifyingly wrinkled from ten-plus days puddled around his ankles, made what slight cosmetic repairs he could, donned his tacky hat with scotch-taped scarf of paper towels, and lit out in last-ditch desperation for Cambridge's Inman Square for the sinister and duplicitous Antitois brothers, their glass entertainment and notions fronted operation center he'd long ago vowed never again to darken the door of, and but now figure to be his place of very last resort, the Antitois, Canadians of the Quebec subgenus, sinister and duplicitous, but when it came down to it, rather hapless political insurgents he'd twice availed of services through the offices of Lola Sister, now the only persons anywhere he could claim somehow owed him a kindness the since the affair of the heart. The perfidious Quebecois. The perfidious Quebecois. Le Quebecois perfidio. <laughs> that was a sentence. Um, now I'm just remembering uh, he... He's hallucinating ants, yes. which is something that um, when Tiny Yule mm -hmm. went to detox, his roommate was was also hallucinating ants. And there, there was also the... Uh, For, formicated. 
for as opposed to fornicated. Formicated, formicated is like uh, ant. Something is ant like. Ant like, and then uh, there was also in the first Orin chapter, isn't he watching trails of ants go along his uh, his? You might be right. Apartment in between uh, gassing. What was? Isn't he like gassing cockroaches? Yeah. Wow. Um, ants. Another another theme. What does oh, it mean? Oh, the little ants. <laughs> 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 I would score, dude. If I was like a real sicko director, I would score the scene the with, uh, with the ants, ants marching. marching. Uh, I mean, that would be a good uh, uh, counter counter tonal mm-hmm. move. I mean, that's the thing is, I think that you have to like. I mean, this is obviously supposed to be harrowing. Mm-hmm. What with all the heroin, but mm-hmm. I mean uh, that's part of my like tedium with this is like how do you do you ring? I don't know that necessarily has to be entertaining, but engagement out of it, and it's just like I don't know. I I just can't. I, it's I, just so bleak. It is just so so very bleak, and and I know get the impulse of wanting to convey the extended brutal tedium of a withdrawal uh, with an extendedly brutal tedious passage, but. Again, I've once I've read this once, I've read this a thousand times. You yeah, know? yeah. I think maybe I'll, that's I'll get the point more to my it. examples that we can talk about inter, intertextual examples at the end of this. Sure. Uh, in his coat and scally cap over scarf on Watertown Center's underground Gray Line platform, when the first hot loose load fell out into the baggy slacks and down his leg and out around his high heel. He still had only his red high heels with the crossing straps, which the slacks were long enough to mostly hide. Poor Tony closed his eyes against the ants formicating up and down his arm's skinny (laughs) length and screamed a soundless interior scream of utter and soul-scalded woe. His beloved boa fit almost entirely in one breast pocket, where it stayed in the name of discretion. On the crowded train itself, then, he discovered that he'd gone in three weeks from being a colorful and comely, albeit freakishly comely, person to being one of those loathsome urban specimens that respectable persons on tea trains slide and drift quietly away from without even seeming to notice they're even there. His scarf of paper towels had come partly untaped. He spilled of, smelled of bilirubin and yellow sweat and wore weak old eyeliner that simply did not fly if one needed a shave. Uh, there had been some negative urine incidences as well in the slacks to round matters out. He had simply never in his life felt so unattractive or been so sick. He wept silently in shame and pain at the passage of each brightly lit public second's edge, and the driver ants that boiled in his lap opened needle-teethed little insectile mouths to catch the tears. He could feel his erratic pulse in his sty. The gray line was of the green and orange line trundling behemoth type train, and he sat all alone at one end of the car, feeling each slow second take its cut. When it descended, the seizure felt less like a separate distinct health crisis than simply the next exhibit in the corridor of horrors that was the old cold bird. In actual fact, the seizure, a kind of synaptic firefight in poor Tony's uh, desiccated temporal lobes, was caused entirely by withdrawal not from heroin, but from plain old grain alcohol, which was Codinex Plus cough syrup's primary ingredient and balm. He'd consumed upward, upwards of 16 little 80-proof bottles of Codinex per day for eight days, and so was cruising for a real neurochemical bruising when he just up and stopped. 
The first thing that didn't augur very well was a shower of spark-sized phosphines from the ceiling of the swaying train. This plus the fiery violet aura around the heads of the respectables who'd quietly retreated as far as possible from the various puddles in which he sat. Their clean pink faces looked somehow stricken, each inside a hood of violet flame. Poor Tony didn't know that his silent whimpers had ceased to be silent, was why everyone in the car had gotten so terribly interested in the floor tiles between their feet. He knew only that the sudden and incongruous smell of Old Spice stick deodorant, classic original scent, unbidden and unexplainable, his late obstetric papa's brand, not smelled for years, and the tiny panicked twitters with which withdrawals ants skittered glossily up into his mouth and nose and disappeared, each of course taking its tiny pincered farewell bite as it went, augured some new and vivider exhibit on the corridor's horizon. He'd become, at puberty, violently allergic to the smell of Old Spice. As he soiled himself and the plastic seat and floor once again, the classic scent of times past intensified. Then poor Tony's body began to swell. He watched his limbs become airy white dirigibles and felt them deny his authority and detach from him and float sluggishly up snout first into the steel mill sparks the ceiling rained. He suddenly felt nothing, or rather nothing, a pre-tornadic stillness of zero sensation, as if he were the very space he occupied. Then he had a seizure, which takes us to endnote 103. A quote, uh, episode of excessive neuronal discharge manifested by motor, sensory, and or psychic dysfunction with or without unconsciousness and or convulsive movements plus eye rolling and tongue swallowing. Thank you, David. Thank you. Back to the text. The f- <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what I, was, what I was expecting there. Sure. The floor of the subway car became the ceiling of the subway car and he was on his arched back in a waterfall of light gagging on Old Spice and watching his tumid limbs tear ass all around the car's interior like undone balloons. <laughs> the booming zuckung, zuckung, zuckung was his high heels drumming on the fl- soiled floor's tile. He heard a rushing train roar that was no train on earth and felt a vascular roaring rushing that until the pain hit seemed like the gathering of a kind of orgasm of the head. His head inflated hugely and creaked as it stretched, inflating. Then the pain, seizures hurt is what few civilians have occasion to know, was the sharp end of a hammer. There was a squeak and rush of release inside his skull, and something shot from him into the air. He saw Bobby see, uh, he saw Bobby see sees blood misting upward in the hot wind of the copley blower. His father knelt beside him on the ceiling in a well-rended sleeveless tee, extolling the red so- the red socks of rice and lin. Tony wore summer taffeta. His body flopped around without okay from HQ. (laughs) He didn't feel one bit like a puppet. He thought of gaffed fish. The gown had a thousand flounces and a saucy bodice of lace crochet. Then he saw his father, green gowned and rubber gloved, leaning to read the headlines off the skin of a fish a newspaper had wrapped. That had never happened. The largest print headline said, Push. Poor Tony flopped and gasped and pushed down inside, and the utter red of the blood that feeds sight bloomed behind his fluttering lids. Time wasn't passing so much as kneeling beside him in a torn t-shirt, disclosing the rodent-nosed tits of a man who disdains the care of his once comely bod. Poor Tony convulsed and drummed and gasped and fluttered, a fountain of light all around him. 
He felt a piece of nourishing and possibly even intoxicating meat in the back of his throat, but elected not to swallow it, but swallowed it anyway, and was immediately sorry he did. And when his father's bloody rubbered fingers folded his teeth back to retrieve the tongue he'd swallowed, he refused absolutely to bite down ungratefully on the hand that was taking his food. Then without authorization, he pushed and bit down and took the gloved fingers clean off, so there was rubber-wrapped meat in his mouth again, and his father's head exploded into needled antennae of color like an exploding star between his gown's raised green arms, and a call for zukung, while Tony's heels drummed and struggled against the widening stirrups of light they were hoisted into, while a curtain of red was drawn wetly up over the floor he stared down at, Tony, and he heard someone yelling, for someone to give in, er, with a hand on his lace belly as he bore down to push, and he saw the legs in the stirrups they held would keep spreading until they cracked him open and all the way inside out on the ceiling, and the, his last worry was that red-handed Papa could see up his dress what was hidden. Wow, well that seizure description certainly is something. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was thinking about our idea from last episode about this being a... Uh graphic novel the entire time of that that would be a very yeah so what's the infinite gist of this uh <laughs> tony, of this tony hangs out tony, tony has with, a seizure tony withdraws in a bathroom and then has a seizure on the tee and apparently <sighs> chews off some paramedics fingers i need i need to know i need to know what someone who who i need to know what someone who's not cis thinks of this chapter because it's so interesting that like t- tony's trans basically right. Um, and the way that David writes about this is not necessarily, I don't think it's definitely not 2021 20, level, but there is a certain like sensitivity toward dysphoria. Like yes. that's a, like, as opposed to just being like, it's a man in a dress. Yeah. But then there are some like sort of unkind jokes about talking about wearing eyeliner when you need a shave that are seem very nineties classic. Trans yeah. But even in that, even in that way, he's describing it from the point of he's view a, of a character who would have been living like that and noticing it about themselves when they have not been able to upkeep their own presentation yeah and that being a part of this thing that they're going through what is dysphoria and what is uh transphobia yeah (laughs) because then you end like his father is an obstetrician obviously get you know Mm -hmm. having people give birth uh usually women people Mm -hmm. with vaginas and ending with this scene where he's like kind of giving birth but also dying Yes, and he's worried, like, and like I'm, hallucinating his father, hallucinating presi- his father, presiding over, over himself, his birth? giving birth, him giving birth to himself, it's or right. him giving birth All to right. his, I, his I was dead self. That I think that these uh, these withdrawal narratives are are usually tedious and and boring, but he really pulled it out there with that seizure uh, description. Um, so I was going to okay, say, yeah, I was, I was t- tell me what you were. Thinking. I was I was thinking of this as part of like a '90s kind of literary and filmic trend. I was thinking about train spotting. I was thinking about yep. Requiem for a Dream. I believe re- I was looking this up. I believe the train spotting book comes out basically the same year. I don't even think I realized that train spotting was a book. 1993. Okay. It's a it's a novel. Got it. Uh yeah, and it's it's basically the the movie train spotting. Have you okay. seen train spotting? No. I know of the whole like yeah. vibe, but I I've never seen it. We got to go to the bar, the pub in Glasgow. 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 Uh, that Bigsby throws the pint glass over to start a fight in the movie Train Spotting when we were in Glasgow, and that was nice because that movie was definitely something that I watched with my friends when we were in like tenth grade, and we we're like, "Wow, damn, this is important and adult." Important and adult. But that is the thing. 
I feel like there are a few other things. Maybe I don't know if Prozac Nation is quite in this thing, but but Prozac these, like, Nation n- came out in 1994, and there's so, like 90s yeah. dr- like real about drugs things. But then I was looking up Requiem for a Dream, and the book Requiem for a Dream is based off of came out in 78. But the so movie didn't come out until, until the, 2000. Oh, 2000. Okay. But still, there's like this this the milieu. 90s. Well, because it's all. I mean, you have the heroin epidemic uh, of the of the grunge time. Um, Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, has that has that scene in it? There, there is like, and then this... heroin chic is like Kate Moss. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no idea whether she's ever done it, but she was representing an aesthetic that was popular in the nineties, and maybe is, I don't know, coming back in yeah. some way. Heroin chic. I mean, remember it's when crazy it was allowed to that call that... everything say everything was uh, it's like blank on crack. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. What an embarrassing idiom. Uh, bl- blank on crack, blank on acid. Um, n- nothing I've ever heard is being described as blank on acid <laughs> has ever been accurate. I was pulling up quotes for something that we were doing for Chapo, any kind of like praise that I could find, and I was looking at a Tim Heidecker's play- praise for our um, for our uh, for the Chapo book. And in perfect Tim Heidecker fashion, he's like one of the lines in his his jacket blurb for the Chapo book is it's like Howard Zinn on acid or some shit. I don't care. (laughs) That's quality blurbing. I love that. Are you allowed to print shit as a blurb on a cover? Yeah, I don't think he quite quite says shit, but I forget yeah. the way it's written. But it's written the way like I don't know what do people say about this type of thing. It's like Howard Zinn on acid or whatever. It's a yeah, it's heart stopping and important. This is the kind of thing one might describe as Howard Zinn on acid. Yeah, you can still say that, but you can't say Howard Zinn on crack. Yeah. So yeah, the yeah, the, this is clearly, you know, I. Not, not to. I, I feel like you could argue that this is an over essentializing. But if you pick a, a drug of the decade, you could say that the drug of the '90s was maybe both heroin and Prozac. Yes. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I, <laughs> yes, it, it, heroin was definitely having a moment at this time. Uh, but to to the book's credit, he definitely has his mind on a lot of drugs. I mean, there was that long. I uh, see. I think more interesting the. Uh, introduction of Ken Erdity. Erdity? Erdity, yeah. Erdity, who we haven't seen since his introduction uh, 150 pages ago. Yeah, we're, I think that's the most meat you get out of the... Uh, and then he just shows up in the background. He's around, yeah. Uh, which I think is is more interesting because it's, it's kind of newer and different that the intense writing in the same type of like very tedious psychological trauma of somebody in the grips of a drug... But writing mm-hmm. that way about somebody in the grips of like a weed, like paranoia or something, yeah, that's is at new least and new different. and different. Yeah, yes. And I mean, who knows? Like when this came out in '94, again, this this is like one of the I don't know, maybe '96. '96. But he's he's still on the forefront of something. But me consuming it now after a lifetime of seeing these kinds of things, where I'm like, yeah, yada yada yada. Fast forward. I've got, yeah. I've seen this before. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, put this on 1.5 speed because uh, once you once I've read or seen one of these. Uh, these depictions, uh, again, not to sound uh, uh, callous to it. Yes, I get it. It is gross and horrifying and tedious yeah. and soul-wrenching. And it feels uh, like you're dying, except it's very boring. And also fluids. I'm remi- Also fluids. I'm reminded of, uh, uh, did it come out in 2000, I want to say maybe four or five, Ray, the Ray Charles biopic? I never saw that. Is there a big de- detox scene? Near the end, then? so he, he gets very addicted to, to heroin and he um he's he's withdrawing and you know, he's sweating and and writhing about in a in a bed 
Uh, and then I think he, I believe he goes back to remembering his brother's death when uh-huh. like the two of them were kids. I think his brother drowned or something. And he kind of like, his brother basically forgives him. Mm-hmm. And so again, again, the idea of withdrawing so very, hard that you are brought back as a baby. You are forgiven. Yes. Uh, or that like, or that you think about your rebirth or like dying and, and being born again. I'm sure that sequence is very, is very tastefully done, but that does sound very uh, Dewey Cock, walk hard, do it. Well, Dewey I mean, story. Yeah, yeah, there's a reason there was something to parody there but yeah. and then that was pretty much the end of the movie and so you I, you kind of get the impression that uh um that that ray is like he, he he made it he chilled out and then what whatever i was just reading a recent book was talking about ray charles still drinking gin with coffee yes the gin the and coffee which i still have not uh tried to replicate that that is a promise that i know i, I made that part yeah i said that i was going to do it on twitter and i haven't done it someday we'll have it we don't have any coffee right now. We do. We, I mean, we, we could make a hot cup tomorrow morning. All right, we could have, have a some. brunch gin and coffee. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and anyway, the the point the point being that the the tidy Hollywood narrative of of recovery is maybe not so tidy for Ray Charles. But yeah, the I get what you're saying is that it's a the heroin thing is a cliche at a certain point mm-hmm. in the depiction of it. But then David goes one stop step further and i do feel like he is trying to bore you when he's talking about what time is yes like when, when he's talking about how you know he's being like it really sounds like he's being sexually assaulted by time yes. that's kind of an interesting uh i did like the metaphor of feeling like an hourglass for time itself yeah that, that is interesting like time is shit like he kind yeah. of like has these layers but i do think it reminds me of he had a short story david foster wallace called the depressed person did you read that no it's about a woman who is depressed <laughs> and <laughs> wow, it is just a, it's a short story that just goes in such exhaustive examining detail of like a depressed woman's feelings that by the end you feel both you hate her and then you also feel so sad at least i did like just feel so beaten down by the prose mm-hmm. and i feel like he was maybe trying to do that a little bit here just being like yeah well, oh that, god like this person's life is hell let me tell you all about it yeah well that's i feel like that is the thing that's the one move there is like is like rubbing your face and like is because it, it, i don't know I mean, maybe there's something about it that i find like manipulative but it's like intentionally manipulative because it's like somebody going through heroin withdrawal is inherently not a sympathetic person because there is something about the way that heroin is i disagree well in in literature that uh, i don't mean that in in the way that i I think about people but in literature Mm -hmm. it's usually like and in pop literature it's like if somebody has been addicted to heroin it's like usually predicted as like a fucked up life choice right the way it's i mean yeah and you know he was literally involved this character is the previous introduction of him was letting another guy go first because he, he knew, knew that, that somebody was going to, he, yeah. he knew that he, he had had an issue of like maybe being indebted to that guy. Whoa, who sold them the mm-hmm. heroin and he knew it and, uh, let the other guy die. So like, the, yeah. yeah, this is someone who's maybe not acting morally at all. I times. mean, I would say in general, in general, in pop culture, in fiction, uh, the way most, quote unquote normal people consume it addicts in general are not sympathetic characters mm-hmm. and so there is this thing about doing these withdrawal narratives where it's like even the best person you're just like trying to force the general audience through so many levels of the looking glass of being like we're going to show you exactly how gross this is so you realize how much this person is being punished but in how much they're being punished you'll become sympathetic to them but then i'm going to show you it so much that you begin to hate it again you know like yeah that that, that is interesting yeah i think i think maybe i my own like lived experience on basically like i i 
Yeah. The, well, I also think that David Foster Wallace is is saying that all of these people are to be p- pitied or... I like think he, everybody in the book is is sympathetic. Or at least, ha- you know, way. everyone... Although, <laughs> do, does David Foster Wallace give a little more credence and airtime to men uh, who, you know, men, men who are the sons of fathers rather than <laughs> these prostitutes who are appearing and then getting shipped, shipped off, off to, and called yeah. bitch and, and whatever? Yeah. <laughs> but listen, he's... He's a man. He knows what he knows. When are we going to see uh, what's her name again who? in the mental institution? Who is the who we last saw giving the interview to the psychiatrist and is that uh, Kate Gompert? Kate Gompert, yeah, yeah. I guess that that's a yeah. We, well, we need a we need a strong yeah. female protagonist. It's just all book. of the 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 most you know the the people kind of at the bottom of the food pyramid of in, economically have generally been men that he has yeah. at least tried to empathize with, which is all the women are sort of two dimensional. Well, you know, right? What you know. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, Just pointing it out. Do you got anything else on this chapter? Because I've got one little bit uh, of extra stuff for us to do at the end of here. Um, I had received. Wait. Oh no. So I'm trying to remember. Um, halfway through this martini, is that someone tweeted at me? Maybe do you, you want to get do your thing, and then I'll shout out the yeah, amazing is, connection someone sent me. If you have like show DM. business, yes. Because I was going to bring up. Uh, just to do a nice little uh, uh, segue out of this intense withdrawal uh, chapter into frivolity. Uh, we watched a classic Boston movie, a Beantown film uh, uh, made by one of Beantown's finest, uh, uh, which is Ben Affleck's The Town. Hey, hey don't even, it's, it's the fucking town. Don't, hey, don't, don't forget about it, kid. It's the fucking town. What, what is the main character's name in it? Oh, God, it's I don't It's not remember. like Donnie, but it's like D- Danny. Like, uh, uh, I forget. Let me see if Audie. I can do my best Blake Lively. Hey, how do you know Danny? Yeah. Hey, you, got, you can give me another beer. I, you know, then we smoke it to the filter. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have much to add about this other than <laughs> it is very, big Boston energy. It is. I would say, like, worth a watch if you've got nothing better to do, if you want to watch a good Boston heist movie. It's a movie, you know. Yeah. It's uh, definitely a movie. Uh, a lot of uh, Affleck is Affleck. Talk all about over a two dimensional whore. Yes. Blake Lively in the town. Uh, Affleck's Afflecking all over that movie. Uh, but I enjoyed the, uh, the Boston scenery, the sure. Charlestown photography. Even, uh, even. Even Fen- not to give it away, but even a little bit of Fenway Park. Oh yes, they do. They do rob Fenway Park at the end of the movie. Um, the insistence upon, and I have no idea whether this is true because I'm not in this lifestyle at all. The insistence upon uh, Boston Irish brotherhood as something akin to the mafia, yes, like the, I- the o- Irish Omerta. Uh, I do. I don't. <laughs> His name was Doug. Dougie. Hey, how you know Dougie? Hey, how you know Dougie? Well, that is the thing. Hey, give me another, so, give me another Sam Adams. I'll tell you all about Dougie. The, that is the thing about the Boston mob, the Boston Irish mob, versus every other guy. I'm look. Eventually, every mob guy turns informant, but at least there was like a golden age of the Italian mob where they actually had Omerta, even if it was like I don't know twenty or thirty years in the middle of the twentieth century. Sure. The thing about the Boston Irish guys is, for the entire time that they were in mobs, everybody was just, like everybody was an FBI informant. Every rat was eating cheese. Yes, uh, gotta eat cheese eventually. Yes, that uh, yes that that uh, <laughs> that had about as much um uh their 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 organization was about as watertight as a tennis racket. <laughs> if you if you if you get my drift. Oh yeah. Uh, and also they couldn't do shit, especially the the like departed mob scene. That those were the Somerville guys. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Somerville, I think so. Uh, Southeast. No, it's still both sides. It's, it's oh. two neighborhoods. It's Charleston is where Beacon Hill is, and then you go uh, west a little bit, and it's Somerville, and those were okay. the um, like the d- depotted, depotted guys, yeah, uh, and Black Mass. <laughs> who was the fucking guy? Uh, Whitey and, uh, Bulger. Whitey Bulger. Uh, like basically, their story was they kept knocking other guys who were running rackets out of the game and taking over their rackets, and then immediately running those rackets into the ground because they couldn't actually manage like a multi-million-dollar gambling concern. They like act, they couldn't like do the business of doing those things. God damn but they it. were good at killing guys and telling FBI agents about the guys they were killing. Hey, everyone's got their something. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, no, I would say watch the town if you have uh, two hours free. Or if you if you have two hours free and you're craving some big Boston energy in your yeah. life, I maintain that Ben Affleck is, I, as I said to you, his celebrity overshadows his genuine skill as a director, an actor, and a writer. I um, think he's too the, his problem. I mean, I need to look up his birth chart because I think that could explain a lot. But like right now, he's having a resurgence. He's back with Jennifer Lopez. He's wearing a watch that he gave her back in like 2005. We're leaning. We're harkening back. We're living in the Renaissance. We're living in the Renaissance. The Beneficence, really. Um, benef- benefication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he he can't. He's addicted to that attention. But I think it genuinely overshadows what he can actually do behind and in front of a camera. I would say that he is a competent director. I think if you best. hand him a script, he will do a good job with it. What you know what I, you got to say uh, without that's being flashy, better that's better than a lot of people. Probably better than me. Also, I I uh, amuse myself by thinking especially there is one scene that we will eventually get to probably about a calendar year from now in this book that I think would actually be great with some Ben Affleck uh bo- gritty Boston direction. There is a real action scene in this that is a pivotal point in this book uh that won't be spoiled and that wasn't spoiled um when we were we went on i hate infinite jest uh that the other podcast i don't even remember what we talked about in that in that exactly well you you were shielded uh skillfully um from the spoilers but anyway there, there is a real boston crime uh scene in this that i actually think ben affleck could have done a great job with ben affleck executive produced infinite jest miniseries uh, where he also plays Don Gately. Don Gately. <sighs> he doesn't direct it. He directs the first episode and he executive produces it. And then, like, you know, you get 10 other directors or nine other directors do, to do the other ones, but my, he plays Don Gately. My one, you know, who I actually think would be great at playing Don Gately would be Channing Tatum, mm. another another slab. Um, but Don Gately is supposed to be in his 20s, but that can all be, you know, it's Hollywood, man. Isn't he like an expert burglar? That yeah. could be like an older guy. Yeah, I mean, you could also re- rewrite the idea is like he's got some promise and some life ahead of him, mm-hmm. but like you could fudge that a little bit. All right, we're going long into the discussion here, but I mean, who cares if you're listening to this? You know, you whatever you're you're, 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 in, in, for you're it. in for. I it. just wanted to shout uh, out one DM that I got um, from uh, uh, a listener who pointed out that last episode when I said that uh, the guy who was who had his you know petroleum jelly samples who was watching the. BU game where Oren debuted and he mm-hmm. did a 90 yard punt mm-hmm. that sounded it was so loud it sounded like a bomber mm-hmm. uh well and I was like that was like a sounds like a short story 
uh, this person reminded me that remember when Madame Psychosis was being uh, introduced as the radio host mm -hmm. and the person, the program before her was the uh, program called Those Were the Legends That That Which Were Once Were. Yes. And the person was saying, I will call the sky was cloudy. When he punted, you spent a real long time studying the sky. They really hung. He had a long hang time of three, 8.3 seconds that day. That's COE's hanging boy. I never, me, I never went five in my day, twice. And this guy then goes on to say that uh, it sounded like a bomb. That is an impression of that guy done by an MIT student for the, the program. Those were the legends that once were. So this is a guy who is an MIT student who is, you know, doing an impression, doing an impression of, impression of, the guy of who his saw... dad who saw Orin punt right before jo uh, Madame Psychosis slash Joelle Van Dyne goes on to do her show. Wow. So th thank you to that lis listener for pointing that out because I completely did not make that connection. That's a great one. I'll go out on one more th thing. Um, we we were doing fantasy casting for the uh, for the Infinite Jest miniseries. We'll bring in our full. Fi we'll fill out a full fantasy cast at some point and bring it into the the show once we have it all. Um, but and we should request listener listener submissions as well. But we were uh, uh, last episode. As we referenced earlier, we were talking about that perhaps the best adaptive format for this would be a uh, graphic novel. And somebody on the SoundCloud commented that, yes, they, they think that graphic novel would probably be the best. But in their head, they always kind of imagined it as a garish DreamWorks animated film. Like, you know, in the style of Kung Fu Panda yeah. or something like that. <laughs> and that for whatever reason, that's how it always came to them. And I was like, you know what? I get it. Yeah. Especially, you know, I also feel like in the Elsa Spider-Man, like those uh, auto yeah, yeah. AI, like kind of automatically generated horrible oh YouTube God. videos. That actually would be perfect if you could design some kind of AI and break the whole book up into like little stupid scripts and then adapt Infinite Jest as like an endless series of 30 second long procedurally generated bad YouTube CGI. It's so horrifying. But that's kind of what it screams for, you know? Maybe that's the entertainment. That is the entertainment, is pregnant Elsa killing Spider-Man. But it's infinite jest dialogue forever. All right, that's it for today. Bye. Bye.